Hey, before you start today's episode, I just wanted to jump on in and tell you about something so very exciting. I am holding my first ever summit. The Rise Above Summit is going to be on the 20th and the 21st of March and the tickets to it are free. All you have to do is register at theriseabovesummit.com. Now, I have pulled together the most phenomenal lineup for you. Honestly, it's like a who's who of the online world. So if you have an online business that you want to grow, so you're either a course creator, a membership owner, or a coach and do offer group programs, then this is definitely the summit for you. You are going to learn everything you need to know from the best experts out there in terms of growing that business. Let me just give you a little rundown of some of the speakers that we've got speaking. We've got the amazing Amy Porterfield, who's going to be sharing with us about growing her audience and basically creating a million dollar online business. We've got the phenomenal Michael Hyatt, who is a New York Times bestselling author, who's going to be talking to us about getting organized in our business. We've got Mike from the Membership Guys, who's going to be talking about using free content to sell your online membership. We've got Lucy Street from Adobe Express sharing the secret source of social media. We've got Graham Cochran, who's talking about a million dollar life giving business formula. And I do an amazing interview with him. We have Adrian Salisbury talking about three keys to maximizing your on camera presence. We have Kirsten Miller, Mary Hyatt, Joy Ann Boyce. Uh, we have Fifi Mason, Robin Kennedy. We have Kylie Lang, Melanie Moore, Jen Lena, Natalie Bullen, Liz Mosley. Like the list goes on and on and on. We honestly have the most phenomenal people. We also have various different activities that you can take part in that go from meditation to tapping to doing marketing in 10 minutes. So we've got lots of fun things and there's also competitions to get amazing swag. So go and check out theriseabovesummit.com. It will be linked in the show notes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Go and find it in my social media. Get your free ticket. And after you get your free ticket, you will be given the opportunity to upgrade to our VIP pass. And our VIP pass means that you can watch any of these sessions whenever you want. Because the one thing about putting on such an amazing summit with such a big and amazing lineup is that we can't fit them all in two days. And in order to fit them in, we're doing tracks. So you will get to pick between three different speakers of which one to watch live. And unless you've got the VIP passed, you won't be able to watch the speakers that you've missed. So do check that out as well. It's honestly going to be amazing. I am so very excited about it and I can't wait to see you there. I've seen so many business owners burn out when they've, you know, they bought into the hustle fallacy. They're working 70, 80 hours a week. And there are so many people out there, so many business gurus that, that are out there teaching that. And what they don't see is when people have a health crisis yeah. or they blow out their most important relationships, they go through a, a, a crisis in their marriage or their kids aren't talking to them anymore. And I, I just think none of that has to happen. I, I'm, I'm after what I call the double win, where you can win at work and succeed at life. Mm. So that and is very important, but that does require that we think about work differently and sort of set kind of as a goal, I think, that we're going to achieve more by actually doing less and focusing on the things that really matter and letting the rest go. 
You are listening to Your Dream Business Podcast, episode 255. You are listening to Your Dream Business Podcast, and I am your host, Teresa Heathwaring. If you are a business owner who is striving to build a business and a life that you dream of on your own terms and doing something that you love, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I will share with you business, marketing, and mindset tools and strategies that I have used to start and grow my own dream business, as well as the dream businesses of hundreds of business owners from around the world. So if you're ready, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the special summer podcast editions, where I am giving you some amazing replays from the phenomenal people I have interviewed over the last how many years of having this podcast? I should actually work it out when I actually started the podcast because I can't remember. It feels that long ago. I'm going to I'm gonna look at it before the next episode, probably record the next episode and I'll tell you in the next one. But anyway, I hope you're having a really lovely summer. A couple of things I just want to remind you about is I am recording this in hope that there are still some places left to my event because if not, it'll be sold out by the time you look at it. But I still have my event in September. Now, at time of recording this, I literally have about six places. So you might be lucky and still get a place. We're not talking about it much over the summer. So I should imagine those places will probably still be there. But if you want to join me for an in-person event where we look at your business and go through your business, then please do check it out. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. But, but if you go to my website, you can find the link there as well. It's on the homepage. Okay, on with today's episode. So today's episode, again, one of my favourites, but also one of the most popular ones that I've put out. And today's episode we're replaying is Michael Hyatt's. Now, Michael is a crazy smart man and like has the nicest family in the world. If you've listened for a while, you know that I am very good friends with the lovely Mary Hyatt, who is his daughter. And she coached me and she's amazing. And... I've been very lucky to go out to Nashville lots and lots of times. I'm going out again in end of September and been to Michael's house and hung out with the family and they're just the nicest people, but they're also crazy smart. And what Michael doesn't know about trying to manage your time and be productive and organised, I don't think is worth knowing. And the feedback on this episode was really, really good. People got so much from it, practical stuff as well as being inspired by the story and by Michael himself. He's also, like I said, a really nice guy to talk to. So I really enjoyed this episode. Without further ado, here he is. There we go. Where are you located? So I'm actually in Shropshire in England, obviously. And yeah, so kind of we're about, if I was to go to London on the train, it would take me about two hours. So, but I'm more kind of in the middle, really. So, but I was up in Newcastle just this morning at an event. Ah, uh, so that there. was, it was a fair trek, actually. It's about four yeah. hours, but, but yeah, so we're kind of in the middle. But Mary's actually been to the house, which is ace, because she was, uh, when she came over with Bentley to do his tour, she was like, we're going to this place called, and she, she tried to pronounce it, and it was Shrewsbury. And I was like, it's Shrewsbury. <laughs> and she's like, oh, Oh, right. She, and I was like, that is literally minutes from where I live, Mary. So it was so lovely to have her here and, and cook her a very traditional British dinner. And yeah, it was. Oh, it was that's awesome. Really, she spoke very highly of you. Oh, no, she's honestly, I adore Mary. And 
coming over to Nashville and spending some time with her. We, my husband and I came over and we'd obviously spent a little bit of time with her and Bentley when they came here, but you never really know until you kind of then are spending quite a lot of time. And we right. literally laughed the entire time. We had the best time. So oh, yeah, good. it was brilliant. Brilliant. So, oh, right. Thank you. So it's much. one of my favorites. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, a kind of fifth favorite along with all the others. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so I will do your bio, your intro and outro afterwards. So we'll just jump straight okay. in. I'll introduce you straight away right. if that's okay. Right. So I am very honored to welcome the amazing Michael Hyatt to the podcast. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Teresa. I'm delighted to be on with you. Honestly, I am very, very grateful that you found the time. I know you're a very busy man, and I know that my audience are going to love what you have to say and get so many good takeaways from this episode. So I am very excited. But just in case, and it is a just in case, because I'm sure my audience have heard of you, could you just briefly tell us how you got to do what you do today and have these amazing books and do this business that you have today? Well, I spent most of my career in the book publishing world. Uh, most recently as the CEO and the chairman of Thomas Nelson Publishers, which began as a British company in Edinburgh oh. in 1798. Now, I, I wasn't at the company quite that long, <laughs> but, uh, but I was like the seventh CEO in the company. And so I decided in 2011, we sold the company to HarperCollins uh, Publishers, and I decided it was now or never. I was going to launch out and become an author and speaker, which had been my dream thing for a long time. And I'd been in business for myself before, before I was at Thomas Nelson, and I decided it was time to, you know, become an entrepreneur again. Mm. So I did that. So I had, I had started blogging, believe it or not, back in 2004. I, mm. I broke my ankle and I decided while I was laid up after I'd had surgery on it that I would uh, take on this thing called blogging. And so I was pretty consistent at it for years and years and years and to this present day. But that had created enough of a platform that when I left Thomas Nelson, I was able to write a book on it, which was my book, Platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World. That book went on to become a New York Times bestseller. And I was able to create a membership site called Platform University based on that. And kind of everything else happened, you know, as a result of that. So yeah. today we have 40 full-time employees. We've, uh, we're really focused at Michael Hyatt and Company on leadership development today. So we have an extensive uh, coaching program for entrepreneurs. We have some physical products like the Full Focus Planner and just kind of an array, a suite of products, so. I love that. And you know, it's really interesting that one, you came from a job, if you like, and then obviously went into being an entrepreneur. And also what I love about where you are now today is the fact that you came from a fairly traditional corporate background the stuff that you talk about today for me seems like you've taken a a big leap in the sense of how you are and what you promote and kind of the life you you lead and the balance that you have because actually I don't know about you but I worked in corporate world for for quite a while and Mm. And actually, some of the things that you now promote in terms of becoming a good leader, I don't think they were around. You know, I, I was at, I worked for Land Rover. I was in their their head office in the UK, and you know, I don't think those kind of things existed back when I was there, maybe ten years ago. So, it's interesting that you have been at corporate and now you're you're promoting all these amazing things. Do you think that? Well, did you get any of that from working in corporate? Was it a great corporate place to work or? Well, I was kind of mixed. You know, I mean, I, you know, you learn a lot 
from bad examples. You know, in fact, I think sometimes you learn more from bad examples. And I, I certainly worked for some leaders that weren't great, you know, and I, I was inspired by that to, you know, to try to find a different way. At Thomas Nelson, when I arrived there back in 1998, I wasn't real excited about the culture. I felt like the culture was toxic. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I did kind of as a mid-level manager is I said, well, I can't really change the world above me, but I think I can change the world below me yeah. and have some impact on the culture. So I bet I set out to be very intentional about uh, creating a company culture for our division. And then it was kind of contagious because it, you know, one of my contentions about culture is that it drives operating results. It's the unseen force that drives operating yeah. results. And so I, you know, it started driving our operating results. The division I was running was the 14th uh, division out of 14 divisions in the company. We were the worst performing. We had zero revenue growth. We were losing money, terrible company morale. But we, in 18 months, we went from number 14 to number one. Wow. And as a result of that, people wanted to know, gosh, what, what are you doing over there? Yeah. And so a lot of it was having to do with the culture and leadership and some of the things actually I talk about in Free to Focus about productivity. Yeah. And the other thing I must mention is I was very lucky when I came over to Nashville, I actually went to your office and I, I put it on Insta story and I actually wrote, this is better than my house. Like your office <laughs> is phenomenal. It's so Thank beautiful. You. And it just, from where you're coming from and the talking about culture and things, you have created something where mm. surely your team must be absolutely in heaven to go to work. You know, it's such an amazing environment for them. Well, you know, I, I really see my team as a, as a stewardship responsibility for me. You know, I have a responsibility to take care of them. And, and what really gets me excited is creating an awesome working environment mm. where they can discover their strengths, where they can work kind of in their zone of genius. We call it the desire zone uh, in my book, Free to Focus. Yeah. But, you know, we've tried, to, we've tried to say, okay, if we're going to build an amazing company that's going to grow, and really scale sustainably, what kind of environment do we have to create to attract those A-level players? Mm-hmm. And so I remember my daughter, Megan, and I, I don't know if th- that you met Megan uh, or you met Mary. Yes. Uh, no, I didn't meet Megan. No, I didn't. No, okay. I met Marissa, I think. Ah, she's my youngest. Yes, so yeah, that was it. Megan's my oldest, and she's also the COO of Michael Hyatt and Company. But she and I went away for a day, and we said, okay, how can we create this amazing environment for our employees? So so get this, this is where we started. We said, let's approach this like anything in marketing. So let's create a sales page. So if we're going to create a sales page that's going to really attract and convert, you know, yeah. the best employees, the best prospective employees to become employees, what kind of benefits would we have to have? And I mean, we're thinking it almost like, you know, when you sell a program and you create bonuses and we thought, mm-hmm. okay, so what do the benefits have to be? And so we came up with some crazy stuff on that page. And, you know, we give our employees a, a 30 day paid sabbatical. After three years, we give them unlimited PTO. They can choose to be off whenever they want to be off. They can work from wherever. You know, we have generous paternity leave provisions and all that. So that all just came out of that that desire to to create a place that would attract the right people. Mm, and that's wonderful because, you know, like you, you've I've worked in mixed places. Some places that were nice. Some places that were just horrendous culture yeah. and terrible morale. And they treated their team like 
absolute dirt. You know, they were terrible. And I remember in this one company I worked for, I had a team under me and a bit like you, I thought there's nothing I can do about that, but this I can. And Mm. I realized that my team who were doing the work, if we didn't look after them and treat them nice and appreciate them and, and focus our attention on them, then they wouldn't do a good job and we wouldn't have a service to sell. So for me, the, the, the owners of the business and the people who ran it got it all completely wrong. It was like they treated those people like they were no one and they treated the directors like they were everything. And it's like, but what if tomorrow they all decide they're going to do a terrible job because you haven't got a business left if that's the case? No, that's right. In fact, I, I often say to my people and when I'm out speaking to CEOs and business owners, I say, look, your, jo- your first job is to take care of your people. If you take care of your people, your people will take care of your customers. And if they take care of your customers, the customers will take care of you but don't ever get that backwards. Yes. No, you're right. That's awesome. Such good advice. So uh, I said today, we want to talk about Free to Focus, your book that I've read. It's a, well, I've read a few books and this one for me, it was a really good standout book that I think my audience are going to love hearing about because when you start a business and I made this huge mistake, so I started my business and I thought, how hard can this be? how naive was I? (laughs) And I thought I've been in marketing for like 15 years. I know marketing like the back of my hand. I can do this, this bit's easy. But what I didn't appreciate was what it's like to run a business. Like, because I had never run a business and how do I manage myself? So, you know, I can have all the best tools and hacks and everything in the world, but if I wake up in a day and I don't feel like doing that work, or if I get overwhelmed and then I can't focus on anything, the impact on my business that I have personally is obviously massive. And what was so great about the book is there's, it kind of turns a lot of stuff on its head in terms of how we think we're trying to be productive and how we think we're trying Mm. to manage our time effectively. And actually we're doing the complete opposite. So can we start by just looking at what are the kind of myths that that business owners and CEOs and people get wrong when they're trying to, or they think they're trying to be super productive? Yeah, I think one of the biggest one is they fall prey to what I call the hustle fallacy. And this is the idea that if you want to achieve more, you have to work more. And the entire premise of the book, in fact, the subtitle of the book is a total productivity system for achieving more by doing less. Yeah. And, And I think, you know, not all tasks, not all meetings, not all opportunities are created equal. And I think the sooner that we realize that, the more we can focus on those high leverage activities or meetings or opportunities that really drive the results so that we can have a life and a business. Because I've seen so many business owners burn out when they've, you know, they bought into the hustle fallacy. They're working 70, 80 hours a week. And there are so many people out there, so many business gurus that that are out there teaching that. And what they don't see is when people have a health crisis or they blow out their most important relationships, they go through a a crisis in their marriage or their kids aren't talking to them anymore. And I, I just think none of that has to happen. I, I'm, I'm after what I call the double win where you can win at work and succeed at life. Mm. So that and is very important, but that does require that we think about work differently and sort of set kind of as a goal, I think, that we're going to achieve more by actually doing less and focusing on the things that really matter and letting the rest go. Yeah. And the other thing that I love particularly about this and you generally in terms of how you put yourself across and your message is that balance is that it's not just about 
all your focus is on work, all your focus is on building the business, all your focus is that. It's the fact that you talk about your wife and your children and your grandchildren and you take a, a long holiday. You take a sabbatical, don't you, every year? I do. And how long are you away for when you do that? Uh, 30 days every year. I've done that since the very first year I started because part of, part of that, Teresa, was because I didn't want to build a business that was so dependent upon me that it couldn't run without me. Yeah. And I've, I've often thought, you know, that, that if the business can't run without me, I'm really not an owner. I'm just an operator. And, and basically yeah. I have a job and I'm probably working for the most onerous, most intense, <laughs> most demanding job uh, boss I've ever worked for. And that's, yeah. that's me. Yeah, honestly. And, and like you said, that's the thing. We set up these businesses and one of the first books or one of the books I read very early on, which really helped me shift a bit with this, only a bit because I think you have to have lots of impacts and different things, was the E-Myth Revisited. Is that oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, yeah. And he talks about the fact of we are basically just setting up our businesses to have a job. And if we're not in it, it doesn't exist. So how do we set up the business? Exactly what you said in order to then come out of the business. The other thing that you talk about as well, which I think is amazing in terms of this balance, because like you said, the hustle culture, and especially in when you look at some of the more guru-esque type people around social media. You know, you just have to look at someone like Gary Vaynerchuk and and it's all hustle and it's working super hard and it's doing this and working these long days. And, and you know, like I said, you've come completely away. And the other thing that I love is that you talk about taking time off. And I'm, I wasn't very good at that. And I love the fact of how you schedule that in as important as you schedule other stuff in. Yeah, I really do. And I talk about this, as you know, in chapter three of the book on rejuvenation. And, you know, all the science suggests that we are made to take breaks. You know, our life should consist of a rhythm, a rhythm between work and rest. And, and I sometimes people say, well, if you could give me one tip so that I could be more productive and more focused, what would it be? And I say, get a good night's sleep. There is nothing more foundational, nothing more fundamental to your productivity, to your focus, to driving the results you want in your business than being well rested. You know, you, you think uh, like late at night, you're trying to, maybe you're trying to write some copy for a website or you're working on some other project and you just like, it just feels like you're trying to run through a swimming pool. You can't get any momentum, you know, just all this resistance against you. Get a good night's sleep, next morning, knock it out in 15 minutes. You know, that's the yeah. difference between a well-rested mind and one that's not rested. So we've got to take care of ourselves if we're going to be our most productive selves. And again, I love that because we, it's like you're stripping it right back. You're not sat there going, oh, here's a good hack. Do this particular thing, download this app, do this, whatever. You're literally saying, don't, don't try and cheat this. You can't cheat the amount of hours you have in a day or how productive you can be in a day. So let's go with it and, and work with it. The other thing that I absolutely love you talking about, and when I read it, I was like, thank you. You've now given me permission is that you take naps. Now I love a nap. And I used to be like, I couldn't tell anybody that I would have a nap because I'd just be like, what would they think of me? Like how lazy is this girl? Like having a nap halfway through the day or whatever. But you talk about how positive it is. Yeah, totally. You know, I've been taking naps literally since I was at university and it's not long. It's I, I take like 20 minutes is all I ever take. And the reason I do that is because I found that after lunch, I'm usually a little bit groggy and unproductive. And I read the lives of famous people like, you know, Winston Churchill and uh, Ronald Reagan and John F. Kennedy. And, you know, the list could go on and on and on. Douglas MacArthur and others. They were all nappers. And 
Winston Churchill, in fact, said that it was a way that he got basically two days out of one because he was refreshed like it was at the beginning of the day in the second half of the day after he took a nap. And get this, this is just a new study that I put po- a new study that I posted for my team, but taking a nap can cut your risk of heart, or- heart attack in half. If, even if you only do it two or three times a week. That is Isn't that crazy. That is the best thing I've heard all week. You know what I mean? It's, it's like brilliant. <laughs> keep taking those naps. That's perfect. But you're right. I think sometimes, and do you, do you think this is because of a, an employed culture where you think you are, you have to be at work for nine and you have to finish at five and therefore you have to sit in that role all day without, you know, freeing up your time or taking up other than the normal breaks and you feel like you have to be productive that entire day. And therefore, when I came out of my business, I felt like if I wasn't sat at my desk doing nine and five, I was, I was not doing it properly or yeah. I wasn't properly working or whatever. But it, it, it's completely wrong because you talk about energy and, and it's more about how you manage your energy rather than the time, isn't it? Totally. Yeah. So like I used to think when I first started studying productivity. And I was one of those guys that even in college, you know, I had a day planner and I scheduled everything out and, you know, I was just a geek like that. But I used to think everything was about time management. If you want to be productive, you've got to manage your time. And that was like drilled into me as a, as an employee and as a young executive. Then I just woke up one day and I said, you know, it's not about time management at all. It's about energy management. And so If you can manage your energy, I mean, again, just to use my illustration a moment ago, when you're energetic, like first thing in the morning, if you happen to be a morning person and not everybody is, but if you are and you're a morning person, I mean, you just could like, you know, cut through all the activity and get stuff done and you're checking stuff off the list and making progress. But when you're not, when you're not energetic like that, then it's really a, a, it's really a slog, you know, to get through things. So it is about energy management, which takes us back to, again, sleep, but also nutrition you know, certain kinds of foods. I've noticed this as an entrepreneur. You know, I'm, I gotta be a steward of me. I'm the most important, I mean, I hate to say this, it sounds arrogant. I'm the most important yeah. asset my company has. Yeah, of course, we and all are, yeah. We are, and if we don't take care of ourselves and manage the energy of that asset, we're gonna be in trouble. So nutrition is important. I noticed that certain kind of foods energize me, other kind of foods slow me down, give me foggy thinking, you know, I, I, I just don't do as well. Exercise, you know, I, I mean, we know from the science that if you were to take, draw your blood after exercise, the chemical composition of your blood, the hormones that are released and circulating in your system are different after you exercise. Mm-hmm. So we've got to be intelligent about this. We've got to be proactive. We've got to be intentional if we're going to manage our energy. Again, so, so we can achieve big things. And let, let me just give you one example and, and, yeah. and not to brag, but I think it, it, it illustrates it. So my business grew 62% last year. So our, our company has been on the Inc. 5,000, the Inc. Magazine 5,000 listed the fastest growing privately held companies in the U.S. for the last three years in a row. But last year, I took 162 days off. So that included every weekend, and it included 11 weeks of vacation, you know, the equivalent of 11 weeks of vacation, So, you know, it is possible to achieve more by doing less, as long as you maintain your energy. And you are the perfect example of practice what you preach, because like you said, look how much time you had off. And 
it's almost we got to a point i think especially in an employed status where it was almost like a bragging right of how many hours we worked yes or how many days you didn't take off or how many emails you worked on a weekend and it, it and it's not right, is it? We shouldn't be proud of the fact that we're having to work 12, 15-hour days. Well, this is an interesting concept that comes from the world of psychology, but it's the world of secondary gain. That's, that's the term. The idea is primary gain. You think, okay, I'm, I'm working because I need to make money or I need to service my clients or whatever there. But sometimes there's a, the secondary gain that comes from overworking. Mm-hmm. And maybe it gives us a sense of significance, gives us a sense of, importance. Yeah. You know, I mean, gee, look how busy I am. I must be important if I'm this busy. Yeah. And so you hear you hear people complaining about it and it sounds like a complaint, but I really think it's bragging disguised as a complaint. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, totally. And you know what's really interesting? So I've just been, I just said I was up in Newcastle and because I went to an event. And of course, when you go to these events, we see lots of people that we know. And of course, the first question that everybody asks is, how's things? And pretty much every answer I ever give and everyone else ever gives is, yeah, good, really busy, good. And it's like, yes. well, you know... It, like imagine how it would be if I went up as like, great, I had like three days off this week. People would just, because of how we're brainwashed, people would literally be like, oh, it's the business not doing very well then. Whereas actually I would right. love to be able to go, yeah, I only work part-time this week. It's awesome. It would just be so good. Well, I almost think we ought to, we ought to start a movement where the amount of time you take off, and, and again, assuming you're getting the business results, right? But the yes. amount of time you take off is like the new status symbol. Yeah, yeah. But yeah I that'd be really to, cool. Totally. That, you know, I'm now only working, you know, three days a week. It wouldn't, I mean, that would just be lovely, wouldn't it? Well, it would you be. It. You do it. You know, this is the thing. You manage to take this time. The other thing I want to quickly uh, mention before we move on, because you have these three great steps that you talk about in your book. But the other thing I want to mention is the fact that, that when you talk about blocking your time off, as in not just holiday time, but weekend time. So you say that you take two full days off for sure a week and obviously yours happens to a weekend. I think most people's are generally the weekend, depending on obviously their type of business. Sure. But not only is it that you don't work, but, and this is interesting because this wasn't something I did. You don't listen to audio books. You don't read stuff. You don't write about work. You don't, you try not to think about work. And again, I wasn't doing that. So I would have a day off, but I would get up and I'd listen to a podcast. And then I would have always have my notebook with me. And then my husband and I would go and sit in a, a you know, country pub uh, somewhere lovely in England. And we'd be sat there with a glass of wine and I'd be like, oh, right. So let's do this and we could do this and let's change that. And oh, I need to think about doing this. And, you know, and it's always there. And I never feel like I get that break. And I love the fact that you say, no, nothing, not doing it. Yeah, I, I basically have four rules about my time off and I call it off stage time, but I, I have four rules. Uh, I'm not going to think about work, you know, to the best of my ability. And yeah. I'll tell you how I do that in a minute. I don't talk about work. I don't read or listen to podcasts about work and I don't do any work. Now, obviously I didn't do that my entire career because no. I spent a lot of time, like a lot of people do, where I drug work into vacations. I was dragging work home. And in fact, I would say that for the first half of my career, my day looked like I was working, you know, 15 hour days, 12 hour days. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would work, I'd come home, I'd grab a quick uh, meal with the kids and then I'd plop, you know, my laptop uh, on my, put it on my lap and, and start working in the recliner after work. And I'd work till, you know, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night and then do it all the next day. And if I didn't get finished with my work during the week, I'd drag it into the weekend. So I'd go to the office on Saturday morning, maybe Sunday afternoon. But the, this is where I think we have to understand the power of constraints. Mm. 
And so sometimes we think, you know, that the true freedom exists apart from constraint, but I would argue that constraints give us that freedom. So if you think for a moment about the Friday at work before you go on a one-week holiday, mm -hmm. how productive are you? I mean, you're massively productive. Yeah, huge. Right? Because you got you get you get like a week's worth of stuff done on that one day. Yeah. So my executive coach challenged me back in the year 2000. He said, look, and this was after I had a, a big health crisis. I was working all the time. And he said, something's got to change. So he said, I want to encourage you to set three boundaries. And I did. And so the first boundary was, I'm going to leave home. I'm going to leave the office at 6 p.m. from work to go home. And I'm not going to work again. So until the next day. So leave work at 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, is don't work on the weekends. Yeah. And the third thing is don't work on the vacations. So, so then what happens, or on my holidays, and then the, then the thing that happened to me is that in the afternoon, when I might be tempted today, that we didn't have it back then, but today y'all might be tempted to peruse Facebook or just mindlessly spend time on Twitter or whatever. You know, today I'm like, uh, I don't have time for that. I've got to get stuff done because six o'clock's coming up. And even in the office I'm standing in now, I have automated lighting. So the lights turn off and the computer shuts down at 6 p.m. So bad things happen at 6 p.m. if I'm not done. And that's really helped me. Yeah, that, and that's amazing. And But there'd be so many people sat there, and this is where the book comes in, that are going, yeah, but I'd love to do that. However, I've got this and this and this and this and this, and they can list you three million things that they have sure. to do. And therefore, they just haven't got time to stop at six. So let's talk about those three steps that you okay. look at in order to try and start to control this. Okay, so the book's organized around these three steps and the first step is called stop. And this sounds crazy because when you're talking about a book on productivity, you wanna think go, you know, let's, let's make something happen. But I say, no, it's time to get off the hamster wheel to stop and say, yeah, and to really evaluate and say, where is this productivity thing going? You know, ask ourselves the hard questions. Has, has the smartphone, for example, made me more productive or is it just consuming more of my mm -hmm. time? You know, are all these productivity hacks giving me the life I want? And so what I argue in chapter one is that we need to formulate a productivity vision, a clear vision of the kind of life that we want. Yeah. And I argue in that chapter that I think what most entrepreneurs and business owners are after is freedom. That's why they wanted to stop working for, you know, the man or the woman, why they wanted to leave the big, bad corporation and start their own thing, because they were tired of being told what to do. They were tired of working all the time. They wanted freedom. And yet their entrepreneurial dream has turned into an entrepreneurial nightmare where they're working nonstop. So I, I talk about four different kinds of freedom there. First of all, the freedom to really focus. And I, and I, I think, Teresa, this is a superpower in the 21st century. Everybody is so distracted. Yeah. Nobody can focus on anything for more than a minute or two. But if you develop the ability to do deep work, to solve complex problems, to create amazing solutions and to really be an innovator, that's going to give you an edge on the competition. So the freedom to focus is key. Yeah. Freedom to be fully present, mm -hmm. you know, so that when I'm at dinner with my wife, Gail, I'm not thinking about something at work. I can be fully present with her and engage with her. I've been married for yeah. 41 years. And I'm happily married, but that doesn't happen by accident. No. And at the same time, I want to be fully present at work. So when I'm at a meeting, like this morning, I was recording three podcast episodes. I don't want to be thinking about home because, you know, one of the kids are out of control or I had a fight with my wife or whatever, but I want to be fully present with the people I'm with. 
The third freedom is the freedom to be spontaneous. So if the kids drop by, my grandkids drop by, I can stop what I'm doing. I'm not so over-programmed, but I can be spontaneous. Yeah. Finally, my favorite, the freedom to do nothing at all. So I learned this from the, the Italians. Gail and I were over there for 30 days, two years ago. And they have a phrase, uh, la dolce farnante, which means the sweetness of doing nothing. Love that. And it's a great cultural tradition. And so just the freedom just to kind of hang, do nothing. Sometimes that's where the biggest breakthrough ideas come. And yeah. sometimes that's where the most meaningful conversations with the people we love happen. So I'm after that freedom. Mm. And I think you're right. It's interesting when you start your own business. And I have to say, I never intended on starting my own business. This was a very happy accident that I fell into it. But when you, one of the reasons where most people will, and one of the, the big advantages that is portrayed as having your own business is you are the boss, you're in control, you right. you get to choose. And Amy, I know you're good friends with Amy Porterfield, and Amy Porterfield yeah. sums up perfectly where she said that she did this and she went from having one boss to having like 18 because she got these clients on and it just felt exactly the same. And obviously that's what inspired her to then kind of move over to the online space and do her online business. Because like you said, you know, when we have our own businesses, that's the whole point. The whole point is tomorrow afternoon, my daughter is having a, uh, my daughter's nine and she has a meet the tutors afternoon where we can go and see her teacher. Mm. And I can go to that and I don't have to ask a boss and I don't have to feel bad for taking time. And when she does a play or if there's a sports day or, you know, I can do those things because that's what this is about, isn't it? You know, yes. that's why we do what we do and we, we run our businesses. Well, and that's one of the, I, I know one of the things you're, one of the concepts you're familiar with from the book. This is why I think the freedom compass is so important too. Yeah. So in chapter two, that same section of, you know, let's stop and evaluate mm -hmm. is to evaluate all the tasks we're doing. So I encourage people to just look over the last couple of weeks, write down every task, every meeting they ever went to, and then evaluate it based on two criteria, whether you were passionate about that task mm -hmm. and whether you were proficient at it. So in other words, not all tasks are created equal. There's some things that we're just, almost like we're wired, we were created to do. And it's the place where we're gonna have our greatest satisfaction and make our greatest contribution. And so I have a two by two matrix, so four quadrants, and it, this got, it has two axes, one is passion, one is proficiency. So the place where you've got the most passion, the things that light you up, give you the most joy, the things you love to do, the things where you're the most proficient, the things you're really good at and skilled, and more importantly, drive the business results, where those two things come together, I call it your desire zone. Mm. That's your sweet spot. That's where you ought to be spending, especially as an entrepreneur, the bulk of your activity. If you want to scale in a sustainable way and create a business and a life that you love, that's where you need to be spending the bulk of your time. Mm. The opposite of that, and this is where so many of us get caught up, and I've, I've been there myself, is what I call the drudgery zone, where you have no passion and you have no proficiency. And yet you keep doing these things. So for me, it's going to be different for everybody. It'll be different for you, Teresa, than it is for me. But for me, for example, processing my email, managing my calendar, uh, booking my own travel, filing expense reports, all that stuff's in my drudgery zone. So if I want to really be able to achieve more by doing less, I've either got to eliminate, automate, or delegate the items in my drudgery zone. And there's two other zones that are important too that I talk about in the book. Mm. That'll kind of give you the idea, you know, more time in the desire zone, less time in the drudgery zone. That's what's going to give you that freedom to actually achieve your vision. And I think the 
what's interesting is the desire zone for one, like you said, that's the stuff you love doing. So it doesn't yeah. feel like work. So your right. mindset is completely different at that point. So if you've had a whole day doing the things that you love to do, you don't finish that day like, Ugh. you know, you do finish that day like, yeah, that was an amazing day. And also the stuff in, in my drudgery zone is, is things like, accounts. I hate doing accounts. You know, I hate doing anything like that. And therefore, like you said, I take forever. I am very, my energy about it and everything is very negative. And it's just not, it's not best place for me to do. Like I'm not the best person to do it. And it's interesting where the stuff that for me anyway, in my business, I think probably most people, the stuff that you really love to do is the stuff that probably you need to be doing. You know, I, I've just launched an online membership about a month and a half ago. And I did my first ever coaching call on the, in the membership and having never, I've been in lots of memberships. I've helped to launch lots of memberships, having never been in one my, or done one myself. I was like, okay, let's see how this goes. I think I'm going to really like it. And I, I was a bit tired if I'm honest, because it was an evening one because I have quite a few people in the States And I was a bit apprehensive beforehand, like, oh, you know, can I do this? Is this right for me? And I got on that call and honestly, Michael, I was like, fired up off it. And I was like, I could do that all day, every day. And I promise I would never get bored and I would never get tired. And it's like, so that's the stuff I should be doing. And that's the stuff that is going to move me in the business forward because I'm going to help my audience. And then they're in turn going to go, that was brilliant. And Teresa's brilliant and come into the membership and that sort of thing. So it's interesting because it's the stuff that you normally love doing. And like I said, it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like I'm having to like do these tasks that are horrible and I hate. And actually as an entrepreneur, do you not find that, especially when they're starting, that they're very nervous to give anything away or they feel like they have to do everything where actually in that you talk about this in terms of their time and how much time they're spending on it. It's way more economical to get someone else who that is. is. Yeah. So like, yeah. So like, you know, uh, this is a reason people won't hire or won't delegate. They, they say, they say, well, I, yeah, I'd love to get rid of that stuff, but who am I going to give it to? And so you say, well, you need to hire somebody to do it. And so I found that entrepreneurs typically have one of three responses. So the first thing they, they often say is, well, if I, want it, if I want it done right, I have to do it myself, yeah. right? Or they say, uh, it takes longer to explain how to do it. I might as well do it myself. Mm-hmm. Or they say, I can't afford it. I guess I'll have to do it myself. As long as the answer to that problem is myself, you cannot scale your business because your business is going to hit a lid. It's going to hit the ceiling when you reach your capacity. And your capacity is 168 hour, hours a week. And you've got to sleep some of that time. You've got to eat some of that time. There's some other things you've got to do. So it creates a lid on your business. So what happened for me was that I was doing all those drudgery zone activities, but then I realized that I could hire a virtual executive assistant for five hours a week. Now, I wasn't really bringing that much money in initially. And I thought, but if I, if I share some of that money that I have, it's going to be less for me and for my family to live on. But I thought, if... I can hire somebody to do what I've been doing for, and I don't know, you'll have to translate the currency to, to British pounds, but yeah. you know, in the States, like if I could hire somebody for $20 an hour and I can bill at $100 or $150 an hour, that's stupid for me to pay myself $100 or $150 yeah. an hour to do something I could hire out for $20 an hour. So I got convinced on the math. And then I said, I'm going to hire a virtual executive assistant for five hours a week. That lasted two weeks. And then I said, 
this is unbelievable. Now I'm going to go to 10 hours a week. And that was a couple more weeks. And then I went to 20 hours a week. And then eventually it's full time because it allowed me to do just like you were talking about with your membership. It allowed me to acquire more clients, more people that were going to help pay the bills. And my income went up. And for the first several people that I hired, I would say through the first 10, every time I hired somebody, my income went up because it freed me up to do more of what was in my desire zone. Does that make sense? Absolutely makes sense. And you know what I also found really interesting is when I brought on my first team member and it was a virtual assistant and she said to me, right, we're going to do, I think it was like 15 hours a month. And I thought, what can you actually do in 15 hours a month? That is not a lot of time oh boy, what they can do in what seems like a very short amount of time because that's in their desire zone. So when you think you've got to do something and it's like, that might take me an hour, the chances are because that's what they love and that's what they're good at, it takes them half the time. So actually the stuff that she was able to take up, it wasn't like I had her for 15 hours a month, I got back 15 hours a month. Not at all. I got back way more time than that because of the fact that she just managed to do things so much more efficiently than I did. And also, and I don't know whether you, you were like this, but you'd have that thing on your to-do list forever. And every time you looked at it, you'd, you'd see it and it would take up that bit of time where you think, oh yeah, I really must do that. And that mental space and whatever, and actually just going, oh, can you do that? Is just perfect. Yeah, it really is. And, and that kind of, that is a kind of a natural segue to the second part of the book, yeah. you know, is, is about cutting. Yeah. And so, it starts with elimination. You know, once you kind of get clear on your freedom compass and you know what should be in your desire zone Mm -hmm. and everything that falls outside of that, that becomes a candidate uh, to get rid of. And so the first step or the first strategy is to eliminate it because we don't want to automate something that shouldn't be done in the first place. And we definitely don't want to delegate something that shouldn't be done in the first place. Mm -hmm. So we have to start with asking ourselves the question, does everything that I've, I've done over the last two weeks, does that really have to be done on a go forward basis? In other words, is every meeting that was once important still important? Yeah. Is every task that I think's important or somebody else thought was important, is it really important in view of the vision that I'm trying to achieve with my life and my work? Mm. And so I think this is where we have to get really, really good at saying no. Now, I'm a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> so I, you know, it's hard for me to say no. I hate to disappoint people. Yeah. I hate to miss out on opportunities. I'm very conflict avoidant, so I don't like to say no. Mm. But, and this is what helped me, is I realized that uh, with every no, there's a trade-off. There's a yes. So when I say no to something, I'm saying yes to something more important. So if you were to fly into Nashville again and and you'd say, hey, Michael, how could we have uh, coffee one morning or have breakfast one morning? I would tell you no. And I would tell you no because I want to say yes to my workout because what I'm really saying yes to is living as long and healthy a life as I can yeah. to be here for my family. So that happens every day by making that decision to you know, honor my commitment to my, to my workout. So it's easier for me to say no when I get focused on the yes that I'm saying, to, uh, saying yes to or the, the person I'm saying yes to. And I don't think we think about that, do we? We don't think about in making all these commitments and saying we'll do all these things that actually by saying yes to that, we're, we're saying then no to something else. So, you know, I was having to do some work at the weekend because I had said yes to something and that meant I was saying no without even thinking about it to my daughter who was like, right, for those few hours, you're going to have to entertain yourself or watch a film or 
play and your iPad or whatever it was because of the fact that I had committed to do something. And like you said, and I think I'm a people pleaser as well. I hate saying no, but actually the other thing that was so good about the compass was that when you've decided what is important to you, you can then shift out anything else that isn't. So you can really clearly, when someone comes to you and says, oh, could you do this? Or would you want to do this? You go, do you know what? Actually, my areas of focus and where I'm really focusing is here. And that just doesn't kind of fall into that. For me, it gives me that confidence, that kind of, you know, I'd happy to, but unfortunately my goal is over here and I've really got to focus on that. See, Teresa, that's the power of clarity. Hmm. When you have clarity, about how you're wired and what you were created to do, then all of a sudden it's easier to say no. Now, I do have a hack in that chapter that I, that I want to share, and it's the yes, yes no, please. yes formula. Yes. Okay, yes. so this really helped me. So I, 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 I don't like to say no, so here's what I do. And I learned this. I want to give credit where credit's due. I learned this from Dr. William Uri in his book, The Power of a Positive No. So if you're struggling with this, I really recommend that book because it goes into depth in what I want to share here in about 60 seconds. So you begin, somebody gives you a request, you know you don't want to say yes to it, mm-hmm. but you start with a yes or with an affirmation. So affirming them in the request, affirming, affirming the relationship. So here's how it might look. Because I, I came out of the world of book publishing, I get a lot of requests from people who want me to evaluate or to review their book proposal before they send it off to a publisher or an agent for yeah. consideration. So here's what I would say. I would say, hey, uh, thanks so much for thinking of me. Congratulations, first of all, because very few aspiring authors ever get this far. You've completed a book proposal. Good for you. So that's an affirmation. I've said yes to them and I've yeah. said yes to the work they've done. So that's kind of a feel good thing. Yeah. Now I want to pivot and I want to pivot to an, uh, a very direct, unambiguous no. Here's what I don't want to say. I don't want to say, you know, it's kind of a busy time right now. Could you check back with me in a month? Because what will they do? They'll check back with you in a month. <laughs> and and you still right, no. <laughs> now you still got to give them a no. You should be right back where you started. Yeah. So here's what I say. And, the, and these words are, are almost magical. But here's what I say. I say, in order to be faithful to my other commitments, mm-hmm. I'm afraid I have to say no to your request. Yeah. So in order to be faithful to my other commitments. So what that tells them is I, like them, have, I'm, I live in a world of other commitments. I've made a lot of other commitments, but I'm a person of integrity. I'm a person of honor and I want to honor those commitments. Mm-hmm. And I just can't keep taking on commitments and be faithful to my other commitments. At some point, the whole thing breaks down. So I've never, ever had anybody say to me, you know, like, well, you're a jerk or <laughs> that's kind of rude or yeah. whatever. Yeah. People, people get that. What I also don't do, Teresa, is in that no part of the yes, no, yes formula, I don't go into a long ex- explanation of what my commitment is. Sometimes we feel the need to rationalize or justify ourselves, And we say, you know, well, gosh, it's just, you know, it's a busy season in my job and I've got this going on and I made that commitment. I'm yeah. going to this thing, but I don't say any of that. I just say to honor my other commitments, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I have to say no. Then I leave it with a yes. So then I pivot again mm-hmm. and I might say something. If I can point them to some helpful resources that I have, and in my case, I do have some things on publishing, yeah. I'll put into a blog post or a podcast, or maybe somebody else's resources, or maybe just affirm them and say, hey, you know, this really does sound like an exciting project. I wish I could be involved, but, uh, you know, best of luck in, in getting it published. But leave them with something positive. Yeah. The other thing I love about this is when things, when, sometimes when we have to say no, and if we're a people pleaser like we are, like we both yeah. admitted to, is that we procrastinate. 
We don't respond to that email. It languishes in our inbox. Yeah. Then the other person really does get frustrated with us. Yeah. And I've had people write back to me and said, thank you so much for saying no. I can handle no. What I can handle is somebody not responding to me. Yeah. So thank you for getting back to me. You're right. And actually that's half the battle, isn't it? It's the fact of, and you know what it's like yourself when you put something out there to the world because you want something or you're asking for something or whatever and you don't hear. It's like, well, where, what do I do with that now? Whereas like you said, you're going back and you're saying no, but you're doing it quickly, which like, <laughs> I'm exactly the same. It would literally sit there while I think and think. And then I would probably do what you said. I'd probably go, I'm really busy at the moment. Uh, check back with me in six months or whatever, or, you know. Yeah. And, and I know what will happen. I don't want to do it. And funnily enough, Brene Brown, in one of her books, she talked about this and she talked about yes. she was asked to speak at an event and she didn't want to. And instead of saying no, she felt that she had to say yes and she did. And it was a disaster and she hated it. And the whole thing was, you know, she and it was all about the fact of, I just should have said no. I didn't want to do it. I had good reason why I didn't want to do it, but I was too scared to say no. And it proved the point by doing it because she ended up having to share this room with this not very nice person and the event wasn't very good. And yeah, it was just a perfect kind of really, we should say no. But like you said, the other thing is if we're saying yes to that, you're saying no to getting That's home it. on time to have dinner with your wife or seeing your grandchildren at the weekend. And actually, if you know where your priorities are or you've chosen where your priorities are, then you can focus on that. So that's step number two that we've talked a bit about. Oh, sorry, just one more thing that's coming to my head, actually, which is a great hack that you gave in the book. Because you do, as well as talking about the real kind of basics of these things, you also give some great producti productivity hacks. And one of them was that you save emails as almost yes. like templates. And I thought initially, I said, like, oh, this is a good idea. Yeah, I, I think I've seen this before. But then you go on to say that you save them as email signatures. And like, that was just like, boom, and that's amazing. Yeah, this kind of gets into chapter five of the book on automation. So, you know, eliminate or automate and then yeah. delegate, but this is automation. So this like takes that yes, no, yes. And kind of, as we would say in the States, biggie sizes it. And, and so what I do is I, I realized probably about 15 years ago, that I was responding to the same type of requests over and over again. Like people would ask me, could I serve on their board of directors? Would I give to this charitable cause? Would I review their book proposal? Could they have coffee with me and pick my brain? You know, so it was just, it was a finite number of requests that were continuously yeah. coming into my inbox. So I thought, hmm, what if instead of responding to each one of these, and it takes five or 10 minutes for each one, what if the next time I get that request, I'm going to respond in a way that's thoughtful in a way that's, you know, helpful, but in a way that, that kind of fits this formula. Mm. And then I'm going to save it as an email signature and I'm going to title it whatever the request is. Mm. So I, I would title it like request to have coffee. So we think of an email signature, for example, as, uh, you know, the thing that has our signature block, you know, our name, our address, our yeah. phone number, contact information. But you can actually save anything you want with most email clients, including paragraphs of information. So what this, what this did for me was it, it like radically reduced the amount of time it took me to process email mm -hmm. because when somebody asked me, could they have coffee and pick my brain, I would just pull down that email signature, bam, I got the template yeah. in the email response. I would personalize it a little bit, you know, warm it up on the front end and on the back yeah. end, send it off its way. I mean, like 10 seconds. Yeah. Totally different thing. 
perfect and and it's funny until we step back and look at it the amount of things that we repeat so we get this with podcast requests that people want to come on as guests and again i used to do the terrible thing of like oh we're, we're, we don't have any slots right now but of course i'd just be putting them off instead of just being right. totally honest and going do you know what you're not a right fit it's you know i it for whatever reason it was a no i just wouldn't say no and now we have templates where we have a yes obviously if we want them on we have a maybe if actually so they could be good, but right now we are because obviously we batch content and, and then we have a no. So literally they the responses will come in and it comes into me and one of my assistants and we I will literally ping her an email saying yes, no, maybe. And then she gets back to them. And, and like I said, it just speeds the whole process up because we know we've got this template in place so we can just chuck that email back. So that's you awesome. Know, you also have to go through the angst of saying no every time. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, because, it just takes that away, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and you don't have to feel that like I'm writing this email again saying no, because it's like, pick that email, send it on. And <laughs> so we get to the last step, the act step. So talk us around that bit. Yeah. So I talk about a, a couple of concepts here and let me drill down on one. So I talk about the concept of an ideal week. So how would you organize your time if you were hundred percent in control of it? And oh, by the way, if you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, you may not feel like you're hundred percent control of it, but you are. Nobody's yeah. holding a gun to your head and telling you what you have to do. And so to batch activities. So for example, one of the things I realized is that I was a whole lot more productive if I had all my meetings, all my internal meetings with staff and, and so forth on Mondays. And I did all my external meetings, you know, when people fly into town or they, you know, local people that want to have lunch or, you know, coffee with me or whatever. I do that on Friday. So that gives me those three days right in the middle to be my most productive, you know, work on my desire zone stuff that, that really is going to move the needle in my business. So the ideal week's one concept, but if you don't mind, let me just talk about this idea of designing your day. Yeah, great. Okay, so we have a system called the three by three system. And it's basically, you're going to have three goals for the quarter. And I talk about this in another book, the book I wrote before this called Your Best Year Ever. Yep. Seven to 10 goals for the year, two to three goals for the quarter. And we limit it to three goals. And I, I, I'm not going to take the time to get into the rationale for that, but it's critically important that you don't attempt too many goals. Yeah. Because when you have your focus dispersed over too many goals, the likelihood of you achieving any one of them is dramatically reduced. So we say two to three goals, meaningful goals uh, per quarter. Then three outcomes per week. We call this the weekly big three. So, you know, there's a gazillion things that you could do yeah. uh, during the week. But what are the three that if you could only pick three that would really drive the results forward on your business this week, what would those, those be? Mm-hmm. And then here's the big idea. Now, this is going to sound deceptively simple to most people that hear it for the first time. So I'm just going to ask those of you listening to suspend disbelief for just a minute. Let me explain it. So the idea is the daily big three. So you're going to identify three and only three tasks as your daily big three. They have to be related to one of your goals or they have to be related to an important project, but three important tasks for the day. Now, what we found based on our research, when I was writing the book, we found that the average person has 15 tasks on their to-do list. Here's the psychology that that creates. They get up in the morning, they know they don't have a chance of achieving those 15 things, so they feel overwhelmed. Even if they accomplish eight of those and they have seven left undone, they go to bed feeling defeated because they had so much undone. So this is where we have to stop the madness and we have to say, let's create a game that we can win. Yeah. So what we say, and the Pareto principle, the Pareto principle, an Italian yeah. economist said that 20% of the effort 
creates 80% of the results. Mm -hmm. So 20% of 15 is magically three. So what are the three most important tasks out of those 15 that are going to drive the results? And we're going to declare victory when we've achieved those three. My clients, I have an extensive coaching program with about 450 coaching clients. They say this is the single biggest thing that has driven their business results forward. Doesn't happen the first day, doesn't happen the second day, but you do that day in and day out. That's 15 significant tasks a week. That's 60 a month. If you work 250 uh, weeks a year, that's 750 per year. That will make a huge difference in your business. Yeah, massive. And I love that. And I, I, there are days where I can manage that and days where I fail dismally. But I think it is one of these things that you have to work at doing. It's not like suddenly tomorrow I'm just brilliant at it. But what, what I find is, one, like you said, the overwhelm's not there because you're like, if I just need to achieve three things, I'd need to do these. The three most important things are normally the things that are moving the needle for the business or a real key part of the business that, you know, you might think, oh, well, I'll get these other bits done that are smaller and easier. And then actually you've spent the whole day doing absolutely nothing or not achieving anything. And then the other thing I found is I tell myself all the time, oh, this is going to take hours. And then you do it and it doesn't. Like no. you literally think, and it's on your list. Oh, that's a big thing. And that's an important thing. And, and it's probably, I'm going to have to like block out a whole half a day or whatever. And the truth of the matter is, if you literally just focus on that and nothing else, it actually doesn't take that long. It takes way less time than I ever think it's going to take. So t- I got to tell you a funny story about that. So in one of my coaching sessions, we do these coaching intensives in Nashville where people come in and, and uh, meet with me for a full day in groups of about 50 And so one of the things that we always do at the end of every session is we have them identify their three goals for the next quarter. Then we have them just brainstorm for a few minutes. We give them five minutes to brainstorm next steps. Like what would, what would uh, move the ball down the field on each one of those goals? So it might be a phone call, maybe text message, maybe scheduling a meeting, you know, it could be doing a little research, ordering a book off Amazon or whatever. So then we give them 10 minutes to knock out as many of those next steps. Now these are all related to their goals. So they're important. And then we, we create a contest. So we, we had one person, this was, I think about six months ago, we had one person who completed 19 separate steps in 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Wow. Just your point, you know, and people are always jazzed because they feel momentum, yeah. but the, the thing feels big and hairy and difficult until they start. Yeah. And sometimes that's all it takes. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Like you said, once you get going and you start, it's just like done. So I want to ask a question to finish, which is purely a personal, interesting question for, for me. I, I joke, uh, joke and I'm half serious that I, I'm a terrible writer. I love speaking. I love being on stage. I love doing the podcast. I was told as a child forever I talk too much. And now that seems to have really helped me, which is awesome. But I couldn't imagine writing because you've got, how many books have you got now in total? Uh, nine total. Yeah. You've got another one, uh, due out soon ish. Haven't you? It's on well, I, pre-order. I yeah. So the book that's coming out, uh, this next month is, uh, on hiring a world-class assistant. Yes. And I've got so, my next book on, is on vision being a, a vision driven leader that's coming out next spring in 2020. So I do about so, a book or two a year. Like that for me, it sounds like the biggest and scariest goal ever do you enjoy writing? Is that, was that always your thing? Do you find it very easy or do you have to be really strict with yourself? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to 
tell you a couple things and let's yeah. just pretend that it's you and me and there's not no know, one thousands, <laughs> tens of thousands of people. Listening. So first of all, it's an acquired taste. So I don't, I, I sometimes say to people, you know, the first time you taste beer, you think, oh, this is horrible. I mean, why would anybody yeah. drink this? And then you get, you know, people get a, an acquired taste for it. I don't personally like beer, but a lot of people do. Yeah. So, so I think writing is one of those things that if you look at the freedom compass, it's in the development zone. So initially I didn't have any passion. I didn't have any proficiency, but I sensed that it was probably going to be important for my business. Mm -hmm. So I just started doing a little bit of it each day. Now I actually love it. And, uh, I think I'm pretty good at it. So I write every day. I try to write 500 words every day, but that's through a lot of practice. So I think journaling could be a way to get there. You know, yeah. just write something down. Don't feel like it has to be perfect. Perfectionism is the mother of procrastination. Mm -hmm. So don't make perfect the standard. But here's the hack that I want to give to you, Teresa. And this is kind of the, the secret part. Okay. So for the first seven books, I wrote every word. Yeah. And, and then my life and my world changed. And so now what I teach, and I teach my clients this concept too, and it works in a lot of areas, but it especially works in writing. I call it the 10, 80, 10 rule. Mm -hmm. And that is you're going to be involved in the first 10% and the last 10%. Mm -hmm. somebody else is going to do the heavy lifting of the 80% in the middle. So this is how I do it now. So when I do a book, I get together with my team, we brainstorm it. You know, it's my content. Yeah. I've come up with the frameworks and all the rest. Yeah. You know, in your case, you could give people podcast transcripts. Yeah. You could just sit down and do what you do best, which is talk. Talk. Yeah. Then the writer, you're going to hire somebody that's a writer. They're going to take furious notes. They're going to interview you. They're going to pull it out of your head. Yeah. And then they're going to put together a first draft. And I usually do this like a couple chapters at a time. And then I get a chance to review it. Yeah. That's the last 10%. And so they can study how to get it in your voice yeah. so that it sounds just like you. And so there used to be a company. Let me just hang on. Let me look at this up. But it's Book in a Box. Okay. And this is a phenomenal service. That's what it used to be called. It has a brand new name now. And I think it'll redirect me. No, it doesn't. We can look it up and put this on. Yeah, on, we will. We'll add it to the show notes. Yeah. But this is a service basically that does this. It'll interview you and then give you the first draft. I've had tons of clients go to them and end up with a phenomenal product. So think of it this way. You're the architect, Yeah. but you don't have to be the builder. No. You create the blueprints, but you're not the one who has to drive the nails, put up the sheetrock, do the electrical and the plumbing. Somebody else can do that. And that's what I do today. So yeah. I've got a, a content team that manages that middle 80%. And that's why I'm able to be so productive with my writing. And that is amazing because I think there's so many people out there that, and I know for me, because I speak a lot, you know, I get such lovely feedback and good feedback about my content and my knowledge. But the thought of sitting down with it's a blank scary. sheet of paper, oh my word, literally would terrify me to death. You know, whereas, like you said, someone interviewed me, I could talk all day, all night. I can tell you everything, but the thought of trying to get that on paper would be really hard. So I love that. That is a great, great hack. Thank well, you. I'm going to look forward to reading uh, your next or maybe Thanks. your first book. <laughs> you can totally do this. Oh, no, I love that. Honestly, I really, really do. That is brilliant. Michael, thank you so, so much. You have been such a phenomenal guest. I'm so very honored to have you on. I know my audience is going to love it. If they haven't read any of your books and especially free to focus, then definitely, definitely read it. The other thing I highly recommend is I do, or I listen to lots of books, Audible, and you are very good at reading your book. And 
it oh, makes, thank you. honestly, you're brilliant. And it makes a huge difference. You know, there's been some books where either the author's read it and they're not great, or they've had someone else read it and it hasn't quite worked. So I think you obviously have that perfect balance. So A, you read it and B, you are very good at projecting that. And obviously I can tell you you're speaking things anyway, but, but yeah, so it's wonderful. So if you haven't, definitely, definitely go check them out. Michael, thank you so very much. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on. And next time you're in Nashville, you know, let's get together. Definitely. Thank you. There we go. That was the amazing Michael. I really hope you got some good practical stuff. I think like the reason I wanted to replay this one is because some of these things are great reminders because all of this stuff, like the productivity stuff, the mindset stuff, everything is a practice. So don't ever think, oh, I learned that one thing. Yeah, cool. Got it down. And don't beat yourself up when you haven't got something, you know, when you're having to keep going back and reminding yourself, because honestly, all these things are practice. So he is a great reminder for doing those things. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Please do let me know. I hope, like I said, you're having a lovely summer and I'll be back next week for the last of my replay section. Thank you so much for listening to Your Dream Business Podcast. And if you loved this episode, then please feel free to go and share it on your social media or head over to iTunes and give me a review. I would be so very grateful.